going to turn your attention to Acts chapter 10 today. going to read six verses. And I'm going to preach a little different today than I normally do. Normally I preach what is called expositorily or expository preaching. And today I'm going to uh, do a little more topical. We'll start off in the text that I read and then see where we go from there. Acts chapter 10, verse number 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. I want to preach for just a little bit on this thought. The value of one. The value of one. Most of us would not have a whole lot of value that we would place upon a penny. In fact, if you, you see a dollar bill laying on the ground, you would probably stop and pick it up. You, you might even stop and pick up a quarter. But how many of you have seen a penny laying in the parking lot or on the sidewalk somewhere and you just look at that and be like, eh, it's not worth my time to pick it up. Anybody ever done that besides me? And the dirtier it is, the less value you think it has, but it really has the same value. But we, we don't see pennies as very valuable. But I would tell you that it really depends on the time frame of when you're looking at. 150 years ago, a penny had a lot more value because you could buy a lot of things with a penny. You, you could buy a piece of candy and maybe two or three pieces of candy or pennies, and, and you could even buy a meal depending on the location and the time. And so right now, a penny is just not that important. But put it in a certain time period, and it has a more value. I would also tell you that it depends on the situation as to what a penny's value is. If you're at the, at the amusement park, and your child wants to take a penny and put it in the machine, you know those machines where you can flatten them out? And make, I mean, a penny's really important right then. If you don't have a penny, you just can't participate. Jesus tells a parable or tells a story uh, during his earthly ministry. And, and in his ministry, or in this story that he tells, it's a, a landowner who is needing to bring in his crops. That he's trying to bring in the, the crops before the end of the day. And in and and Jesus' story, the guy goes out to the marketplace and he says, I need to hire some people to work in my fields. He said, I'll give you one penny. That at the end of your day, you get a penny. Because in that day, a penny would have been a whole lot of money. In that day, a penny would have been all that you needed to survive for the whole day. And he uses that that measurement and the story, and it's not really the point of my message, but the story goes on to say that he goes back out and he hires more people and he finally goes out at the 11th hour with only one hour left of work. And he says, I need more people to work in the field and he gathers more people in. And at the 12th hour when the work is done, he gives everybody a penny. 
Because the work in the field was not about how much you, how long you were going to work, but about how valuable it was to get it done. And that passage is mostly used a lot of times for people coming into the kingdom and talking about that it doesn't matter if you've served God for 50 years or, or 60 years or two days before Jesus comes, you get into the kingdom, you get the same reward. That we're all going to get in eternity with Jesus Christ if we come into a relationship with Him. The point is that the situation determines the value of the penny. I, I would tell you that there's nobody in this room who would say human life is not valuable. All of us would say that every person has intrinsic value because we're all made in the image of God and because God has made us, we're valuable. But I would dare say that in our practicality and the way in which we live life, that we're, we're not that concerned about the value of one person. I don't know this to be true, but more than likely... Somebody was murdered here in Kansas City last night. Somewhere in the metropolitan area, somebody was probably killed. And you, you, and nor I, unless we know them, would really care that much about what happened. It's not going to be on the national news unless there was something extraordinary about the circumstances. But just this morning, and I didn't get a chance to look at the story, I had too much to do, but it popped up on my, my news feed that there was a shooting in Sacramento. I saw the numbers 9 and 6. I don't know if it was 9 killed and 6 wounded or vice versa. Maybe, and who knows, as the story will fully get out. But 15 people shot. We'll pay attention. But one person, it's just not that big a deal. When we say that they are valuable, we live our lives as though people aren't really that valuable. But what I would tell you is this, is that Jesus cares about every life. That every single person, regardless of who they are, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of where they were born, regardless of who their parents were, or their siblings are or were, Jesus cares about every life. In fact, Paul would write, this, this, write it this way, it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That while hell is a real place and people will go and spend an eternity in hell, it is not God's desire that they be there. It is his desire and his will that everybody would repent and come to him. From the worst person that you can think of in human history, they were valuable to God. Our text is going to explain and expand on some of this value. But before we get in there, as, we, as I've been preaching through the book of Acts, if you've been here for any of the sermons or, or you just know the kind of the flow and the outline of the book of Acts, the gospel has been spreading throughout the world now. It went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, a great revival. Acts chapter 9, Paul, who would be called the apostle to the Gentiles, is saved. And we looked at his conversion last week. Chapter 10 is the next step in the spread of the gospel 
around the world. Up until this point, it was only Jews and then half Jews or Samaritans who were ethnically half Jewish, half Assyrian. But now the gospel is getting ready to go to the Gentiles. So the first thing I want to talk about is this, is that there is the value of one man at Caesarea. And, and I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to treat this somewhat topically. But the story, as we see it in the Bible, is this, is that in Caesarea, there is a man whose name is Cornelius. He is an Italian. He is also a centurion, which means he is a, an officer in the Roman army. And as an officer, he is over a hundred men. That he has a hundred people that he oversees. And, and he is a, the Bible says he is a devout man. Now understand, he's not Jewish. Understand he knows nothing about Jesus, but he is devout. The Bible says also that he is a God-fearer. Which means that, in essence, even though he is not ethnically Jewish, he is following to the best of his ability the God of the Jews. That he is somewhere in his desire to follow God, he has come across the the Jewish faith and he has decided that the God of the Jews is the God he wants to serve. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He's in Caesarea. The gospel hasn't been spread. All he knows is about Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Well then, in addition to his being devout and his being just, the Bible says he is an alms giver. He gives a lot of money to the poor and, and he helps people. And he doesn't use his position to only serve himself, but he does what he can to help others. He's praying one day. And as he's praying, the Bible says an angel of God appears to him in a vision. And says that God has seen what you have done and all of the goodness and the good things that you've done have come up as an incense before the Lord. And because of your desire to follow God, God is going to make sure that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, send men to Joppa. And and when you send these men to Joppa, have them go to the house of a man called Simon the Tanner. Tanner, he is a leather worker. He is fixing leather up so that you can make it into various goods. He said, go to the house of Simon the Tanner, and when you get there, you'll find another man named Simon who is staying there. It is two days' journey from Caesarea to Joppa. Two days of walking. So Cornelius, being a devout man and, and recognizing the angel is being, as being from the Lord, and initially, of course, the text says he's terrified. He looks on him with terror. That seems to be the common response when people see angels. So if all of a sudden you look scared to death, I'm going to assume you saw an angel here. A little humor there, but real, the reality is this. He said, we don't see them, but they're all around us. Bible says that the angels of the Lord encamps around about those who fear him. That God's angels are with us and accompanying us and all around us, even though we can't see them, 
with our natural eyes. He's terrified, but he obeys the message that the angel gives him, and he sends two men to Joppa, and two days later, as they're getting to Joppa, and they're getting ready to knock on the door of the house of Simon the Tanner, at the same time, Peter, who has been staying there, has gone up onto the rooftop. He's waiting on his lunch. He's enjoying the the fresh air that's outside. And so he's on top of the roof, which was common. They slept on top of the roof. The breeze and that climate, you didn't want to be inside if you didn't have to be. And so he's sleeping on the roof as he's taking a little bit of a nap, waiting. And as he's doing that, the Bible says that he sees a vision. Cornelius had a vision, and now Peter's having a vision. And in his vision, there's a a great sheet that comes down out of heaven. And in the sheet are all kinds of animals. But what's unique about these animals is that these are the animals that the Bible has told the Jews that they can't eat. No doubt there's some pigs in there. There's other unclean beasts. Maybe he sees catfish and shrimp. Or like a good southern deal, he's probably seeing some crawfish in there. For those of you who don't know, those are non-kosher foods that the Jews don't eat. And I won't get into all of that. There's reasons for that. But they sure know how to make them taste good. I'll just say that. Whether they're healthy or not, I don't know. And the voice comes and speaks to him and says, Peter, arise, slay and eat. And Peter, being the the great obedient person he always has been, not so, Lord. Nothing unclean has ever touched my mouth. I'm not going to eat this stuff because it's unclean. God says, don't call unclean that which I have called clean. And this vision happens three times. And when he awakens the third time, the men are knocking on his door. So we're looking for Simon Peter. They tell Peter what it is that they want, that a man named Cornelius has had a vision and an angel appeared to him and the angel said, go get Peter and he will tell you everything you need to do to be saved. So Peter gets together some fellow Jews and they walk two more days back to Caesarea and when they get there, Cornelius tells him the story about the angel appearing to him and saying that you're going to tell me what I'm supposed to do. And Peter, who's a little hard-headed, maybe like me, realizes why he had the vision. He said, I perceive that everywhere that men call upon God, He will receive them. That He is not a respecter of persons. He's not going to be just the God of the Jews, but everywhere that people want to know Jesus, he will let them into relationship with him. What I would tell you is that we have an angelic appearance and we have God doing the supernatural and God sending men two days journey away because he cares about one person. The revival that takes place in Acts chapter 10, it's more than just Cornelius. It's it's him, but it's also his family. The Bible says that 
while he had been waiting, he gathers his family and all of his close friends, and they are waiting on Peter to come and tell them what God has said for them. And, And as he's waiting... No doubt the faith and anticipation is building. And so when Peter finally arrives and says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but everywhere people want to know him, they can do that. The Bible says that Peter begins to preach. And as he's preaching about Jesus in the middle of his message, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. That God fills them, not just Cornelius, but all of his household and all of his friends. His friends that he had invited there. And I would tell you that while it's only one man, God didn't say, Cornelius, all of your family and all of your friends, well, they're devout. He said, but Cornelius, you are a devout man. And because you are hungry, I'm going to make sure that somebody comes and tells you the gospel of Jesus Christ. But because of Cornelius' faith and his devotion to God, probably 50 people or more are saved in that one service. People that had never heard about Jesus Christ before that service are filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. God values individuals. God values you as an individual. And I would tell you that he has a plan for you personally. That you're not just somebody that's, oh, I'm just part of the church, I'm just part of the kingdom. No, God loves you as an individual. John chapter 5 tells us the second story that I want to bring out. It's the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's at this pool and the Bible says he's lame and And I don't have time to get into all the theology of the pool of Bethesda and what's going on. But but what they're doing there is that they are waiting on the waters to be troubled. Because the story is that, that when the waters that are just in a pool and they're calm, but if they start stirring and the waters start moving seemingly of their own accord, that the the first person to get into the water will be healed of whatever it is they have issues. Whatever problems they are, they will be taken care of. And Jesus walks through there one day. The Bible says there is a multitude of people laying around under what are called Solomon's porches. People that are sick of all manner of disease and lame and blind and deaf and dumb. and Jesus finds one man, just one. There's a multitude there. And Jesus asks the man, he says, what are you doing? Why are you here? What's what's going on? He says that he is laying there waiting on somebody to help him in to the water. He said, but I don't have anybody to put me in the water. He has no understanding of who Jesus is. He has no understanding that that Jesus is talking about something greater than this water being troubled. He has no understanding that Jesus is looking to do something beyond his comprehension. He says, "I I don't have anybody to put me in. 
Jesus says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man is healed. And what I find, there's a number of things I find fascinating in that particular story. One of them is this, is that the man has no idea who Jesus is. That after he's healed, he walks off and he's rejoicing and people ask him, who did this? He's like, I don't know. I don't know his name. But there was a man. But what's important for our story today is that there's just one. There are a lot of stories where Jesus heals the multitude and he heals everybody who's sick. But that day, it was one man who was valuable. One man who he saw the value in. One man who would respond in faith. And he healed him. I believe it's Mark chapter 5 tells us about the value of one man at Gadara. That there was a demoniac in the land of the Gadarenes. And this demoniac was... He had been demon-possessed for a long period of time. And so much so, and so demon-empowered that they couldn't control him. He was uncontrollable. They would would put chains on him and try to bind him, but he would break the chains as the the demonic power would give him great strength. It never dawned on me, actually, until three weeks ago or so when we took the the youth down to Sight and Sound Theater and saw the story of Jesus. Now, I'd seen it before, but just like in the Bible, when you read something and you can read it many times, and finally you're like, man, I never saw that before. So I'm watching this, this drama unfold on the stage, and they did this particular story of the demoniac of Gadara, and what stood out to me that day is this, is that Jesus got in the boat with his disciples. He goes across the sea, and and sea is probably, in, in our thought process, we think of a sea like the ocean. This is more like a big lake. He goes across the lake to the land of the Gadarenes. He pulls up on shore and here is this demoniac. And Jesus gets out of the boat. The man comes with all of his demons in him and he bows down at Jesus because the demons can't overpower the presence of the power of Jesus and he comes and he bows down and Jesus has this interaction with the demons that are in him they say that we are legion because we are many that some 2,000 plus demons are in this man I don't have time to unpack all the whole demon possession and stuff but Gadara it's Gentile territory 
Gadara is across the sea, and in the words of the Bible, in the language of the Bible, it's a far country. Not because it's so distant in the, in, in the far as you would measure it. It's not because you can see it from one side of the sea to the other, but it, it's a far country because the Jews don't live there. They're serving pagan gods there. Jesus goes across the sea for one man. He casts the demons out of the man and they go into a herd of swine who then go and jump off the cliff. The fact that there are pigs there tells you that it's not Jewish territory. And then Jesus gets back in the boat and goes back across the lake. He took the trip for one man. One person in need results in Jesus going across the sea to deliver him. What I would tell you is that one person is valuable to Jesus. And if one person is valuable to Jesus, that means that you are valuable to Jesus. That Jesus cares about you and He cares about what you have need of and He cares about the things that bother you and the things that concern you. He cares about your salvation. John 4 tells us about the woman at the well in Samaria. The Jews didn't ever go to Samaria. They avoided Samaria. These are These are ethnically half Jewish, but because they weren't full and pure blood Jews and they were avoided by the Jewish people, they would make a a long trip away and around the area of Samaria if they had to go to the other side. They wouldn't cut through there. And Jesus said this, I must needs go through Samaria. We're on this journey, but I can't go around Samaria. I've got to go through Samaria. Samaria. When he gets there, he sits down at Jacob's well. He sends his disciples into Samaria to get food. And this lady comes out who's had five husbands. And the one she's living with now is not her husband. And she's drawing water from the well. And I don't have time to get into all the interaction. But Jesus says, if you knew who's asking you for water, you, you, would, you would want to get this water because it's living water. You'll never thirst again. He says, I'm here to make sure that you're saved. Is the essence of what he's done. He goes out of his way and says, I must go through Samaria. Because one person is valuable to Jesus. Acts 3, Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray. One man begging alms. One man who is lame. and No doubt there are numerous other people that are there begging alms. But one man gets healed that day because one man was going to be receptive and responsive in faith. One man is healed, but it doesn't stop with that one man. Some 5,000 men, not counting women and children, are saved if you look in Acts chapter 4. And I preached about it a few weeks ago. And in fact, the woman at the well at Samaria, it doesn't just stop with her. She runs into the city and says, let me tell you about a man who knew everything about me. Let me tell you about what he did and what he can do in your life. Acts chapter 8, I didn't preach on this portion of Acts chapter 8 two weeks ago, but the value of one man in the desert. 
Philip has been preaching this great revival in Samaria. Probably familiar with the story now. He preaches this great revival. They believe they get baptized and Simon the sorcerer and all that. But Peter and John come down and lay hands on them and they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And in the middle of that great revival, the Spirit speaks to Philip and says, Go out into the desert. Leave what's going on here. Leave the revival and go out into the desert. And what you should know is a lot of times God does not give us a whole lot of specifics. He just gives us a direction and tells us, you go, you'll know when you get there. And Most of the time we want to know all the details. Well, why am I going and who's out there and what's going to take place? And Philip, he may have asked all that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. He just says he went. And when he gets into the desert, he finds an Ethiopian in a chariot who's reading the scroll. The Bible says the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have books or Bibles like we have now. He's reading the scroll. And he's in what would later be numbered as Isaiah 53. Oh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are. The Ethiopian looks at Philip and says, who is he, the prophet, talking about himself or somebody else? The Bible says that Philip at that moment in that place began to preach unto him Jesus. And the result is this, is that he was baptized in the name of Jesus by immersion in water in the middle of a desert. Because one man, one person is valuable to Jesus. I'll send you from a great revival into a desert for just one person. You know, I get asked hypothetical questions when I talk about the gospel. And, and in these hypothetical questions, well, what about this and that? And if this person doesn't get to hear the gospel and this person there or whatever. And, and people come up with all kinds of things and I just go to the Bible and say, there's one person hungry. One person in a country. One person in a city. What the Bible will tell us is this, is that God will send somebody to share the gospel with them. Because one person matters and one person is valuable. I don't have time to get into much of the next one, I'll just allude to it, but the value of one lost sheep and one lost coin and one lost son. Luke 15 tells us of those three parables put together of the man who has a hundred sheep and he loses one, but he leaves the ninety and nine and he goes after the one. It's only one percent. Just one little sheep. He says, I'm going to leave these. They're going to be okay, but I'm going to go and find the one. The lady who loses one of her ten coins and the father who loses one of his two sons. But in every case, when the lost are found, the angels in heaven rejoice over one. It is the refrain at the end of all three of those. And the heaven, 
and the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents. Because one person is valuable to God. That Jesus cares about one. Would you stand together? God is concerned about one person. God is concerned about you as an individual. It's been said that if you were the only person alive, Jesus would still have died for you. Because one person matters. I don't know that the Bible says he would die just for one, but I think the example that we've seen is this, is that one person is all that God needs to do the supernatural, to do the miraculous. He just needs one person that's hungry, one person that's available, one person that's ready to follow him. what I want what I've preached all of this about there were a lot of things I wanted to preach out of Acts chapter 10 but I just kept coming back to the value of one that no matter who you are no matter what you've done no matter where you've been you matter to Jesus that Jesus cares about That Jesus loves you, values you specifically. And He has a plan for you personally. That Jesus is not saving you because of what's in it for Him. He doesn't bless you because... He's got an ego and he wants to say, look what I've done in their life. Look how I've blessed them. But he saves you and he blesses you and he calls you and he uses you because he loves you. He values you. I preach a lot of messages about evangelism and a lot of messages about theology and what we need to do and how we need to think and what we need to be. Maybe not enough about what God thinks about you. But you matter to Jesus. He cares about you. So as we end this service, would you just lift your hands and would you talk to the Lord for a minute and would you thank Him because He does care about you and because He does love you and because you do matter to Him. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord, because you are our God, you are our Savior.
Lord, that when we may not have a whole lot of worth by the world's standards, we're not part of the elite, we're not part of the rich, we're not part of the famous, Lord, but you love us and you care for us just because you are our creator, because we belong to you. As your word said that I read, we are the sheep of your pasture. We belong to you. We are valuable 